0: Appreciate that. It's always humbling when you announce me as assistant principal because everybody hated those guys in high school. I wanted you to know, just kidding. Awesome. Humility. It's just teeming in society, isn't it? It's just so great uh, to hear about all the things that people talk about regarding humility, right? I mean, no one boasts about themselves or shares their opinions strongly or tells everybody else how to live. It's just everywhere in our society, correct? False. All right. We all know that. Um, I coach my, there is, that is echoing and that's going to bother me with being an ADD guy. All right. <laughs> so is there any way we can possibly get that fixed? Okay. Well, we're going to keep, we're going to try. If not, I'm going to use my coach voice. But bottom line is this. All right. Humility. I'm going to give you some, 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 uh, some areas in, in life where not so, not so prevalent, right? Um, I coach a fifth grade team, and so one of our kids hits this home run, three-run home run, puts us within one in the last inning of the game, and he comes he comes across home plate, and I'm like, I'm pretty pumped up because we're one run away from tying this thing, and and uh, he comes across home plate, and one of our kids, they're, so they're all surrounding around home plate, right? He comes in, he jumps on home plate, and somebody yells, what's that smell? And he goes, somebody goes, it's stanky, they start all start doing this right here, and I'm going, you've Got to be kidding me! Fifth graders doing the stanky leg at home plate because uh, somebody hits a home run. Like, there's humility for you right there. I mean, right, right in the right in the kisser. All right, one kid hits a jack and all the, hits a home run. Another kid in a game and he comes in doing the gritty all across, like all down third base as he crossed home plate. And I'm like, this is getting out of control uh, in fifth grade baseball. So, um, regarding that, uh, humility obviously is everywhere. I was, I remember when I was young. I was in fifth grade, I was a pretty good baseball player, and um, speaking of humility, and um, so I was sitting there, and I told the coach I was going to be gone for the weekend, and he was telling me how we were going to do all this and this with, you know, with you being gone, you know, this and that, and I'm like, I kind of asked him the question, yes, I asked him, I was in fifth grade, give me a little grace, I said, how are you going to do that without me there, and um, he just proceeded to give me this lesson on life, and I hopped on my turquoise ten speed, and I cried all the way home. And I've never forgotten that lesson about humility and, um, and how you're, not, you're never not replaceable in life, right? Athletes, their own brands, look at me, right? Look at me, look at me, look at me. Social media, lots of humble posts out there, right? Focusing on other people and making good in the world, right? Not so much, right? Um, recently, I was kind of called out um, in my workplace um, by a coworker, worker actually, um, and in, the, in a conversation on Facebook. And that's where old people go and write their opinions and stuff on life. So in case you're wondering what Facebook was. Um, and so my friend and I, I felt like I needed to take a stand for the gospel because this person said, I am done with evangelical Christians. I'm done with them. And I know that I work with some of these people. And I'm like, well, I'm one of those people. And I started listening to all these people trash Christianity. And I'm like, I'm not, no. This isn't happening. I'm not going to take this. So, of course, I hop, on, I hop on social media, and in a politeful way, I say, I think you're misrepresenting a, a whole entire group of people based on who you think are Christian nationalists. And so one of my other friends um, is a former co-worker of mine, and she stood, she stood up to her and ended up having a text message conversation. And the original poster actually wrote back and said, this is what she said, I just want to live in a world where I can make the choices that work best for me and my circumstances. Doesn't sound... Too bad at first, but if you kind of dig underneath that, it's basically the message that is I want to live for me, and all y'all need to bow to that. And we need to make rules and regulations that work for me and my life and the life that I want to live. And that's, that's a really dangerous place to be. It's a really dangerous place to be. Trust me, um, there's a great need for humility in our society. And as you get older, whether you want it or not, I'm 44 now, humility will find you, all right? I just spent a full day with fifth graders and seventh graders at Monticello. Anybody been to that Wibbit on, at Monticello in the lake with all those inflatables out there? Super fun, yeah, they destroyed me out there, okay? Um, it, was, it was great, it was a great day. I was so sore the next day. They were ready to go back. I was ready to take a day-long nap the next day, but humility will find you as you get older, whether you like it or not. But what if I told you that there is pro- there's, a, there's a real great danger associated with a lack of humility. What if I told you that there is great danger associated with a lack of humility? So, Moses, right? So what Moses, you guys learned about crossing the Red Sea last week, is that correct? Across the Red Sea, right? People started grumbling and complaining in the desert. And then Moses strikes a rock, right? And Moses subtly takes credit for striking that rock. And what was Moses' punishment? Anybody know? Not two years. Not 20 years. Forty years. Forty years in the desert. Forty years of, of uh, waiting and never getting to step foot in the promised land. The land that was promised to the Israelites when they left Egypt. That's a That's a dangerous place to be when we don't understand what humility can really truly do, right? So we have a tall task in front of us. My job is to help you see Jesus in the Old Testament through the book of Judges. I brought up humility because I want to come back to that later. And as we see that in the story, we have a tall task in front of us, uh, specifically Samson's story. And out of that story comes many lessons, right? If you Google Samson and Jesus and just Samson in general, lots of different lessons that we can take from that, including those of humility and strength and weakness, and not recognizing the giver of gifts. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us right now because uh, I just want to be faithful to God's word as we, as we open that up together. So uh, God, would you, would you make your word known to these people in this room? Uh, would you give me the words to say, Would you give the gift of teaching in this moment so we can all come to understanding of who you are and what you've done and that we may glorify you and honor you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So we're, we're, let's go ahead and back up to Exodus a little bit before we get into Judges. <clears throat> Exodus, um, you guys talked about crossing of the Red Sea. I'm just going to go ahead and pick up right there. So after the Red Sea, Moses then leads the people, um, the Israelites, into the desert. And they one of the first things they start doing is they immediately complaining. And you see a lot of complaining that happens in the desert about food, about water, about everything else. And God richly provides um, for those people. And so... One of the things that happens after that too is they form the uh, Moses goes up on the mountain. They form the Ten Commandments. Um, then they eventually form laws. They command celebration. They command feasts, all to remember what God has done for them along the way. They um, talk about um, they build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, etc. So Moses can go to the tent of meeting. God can descend upon. Um, the tent of meeting, and he can speak with Moses, and um, Moses can can come out and tell the people exactly what happened. And all of this, remember, is set up from the very, very beginning of time. God wanted to dwell with his people and be in communion with his people, right? So God, Adam and Eve in the garden, sin comes along, sin separates Adam and Eve from, from God at that point, and so then, therefore, they couldn't be together because unholiness in the form of sin cannot be in the presence of pure holiness, which is God, right? It has to be punished according to God. And so God still sees this. Um, The people still want to be in the presence of God. God still wants to be in the presence of people, so they form laws, set up rules for going into the tent of meeting, talking with God, what people have to wear, the priests, what they could carry, and all of these different things. And as we know, the more laws you create, the more opportunities to break those things are what happen. And so the people, what the law was really powerless to do was meant to get them closer to God. It actually showed them and separated them from God Um, in the end. And so all of this was originally designed so God could live and dwell with his people and live with them. So Moses, Moses dies, gives a charge to the people, right? Joshua then is commissioned to lead Israel. So this wandering in the desert ends as Moses Moses dies and all of his homies around him, they all kind of pass away, that generation, and all of a sudden the next generation starts going and they're going to take over this promised land. And God has promised them this, a land flowing with milk and honey, it has whatever that means. I mean, I don't even know what this means. Probably like large fruits and, and water and all, everything else in there that they need. So uh, Joshua is commissioned to lead Israel. Moses dies. Joshua goes in and absolutely just cleans house. Cleans house and takes over so many different cities in the promised land just as God promised. And then as he comes to the end of his life, this happens for quite some time. Before he dies, he gives this charge to Israel. He says this, Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord, right? So he says, put away the gods that your father served and serve the Lord. And the people responded. What was their response? Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Far be it. We will never do that. We should never, ever do that. So they just came off of leaving Egypt, seeing the Passover happen, crossing the Red Sea, God providing for them in the desert, and they say, yeah, that's, we're never going back to that style of life. We're not going to ever do that again. Okay, so let's go ahead and enter the Judges. So Joshua comes at the, his, at the end of his life, Joshua. We enter the book of Judges. Now, keep in mind the book of Judges is not... Two people or two groups of people, plaintiffs, defendants standing in front of somebody and somebody like making a judgment about whether someone's innocent or guilty. That's not what the book of Judges is about. The book of Judges is really people being raised up because the Israelites have been taken into captive to save people, save the Israelites from the enemies. That's really what it comes down to, all right? So they continued their conquest of Canaan, which is the promised land. Ju- the tribe of Judah was called out in the beginning part of the book of Judges. Judah was called out, and they drive out the Canaanites as God has commanded. So good job, tribe of Judah. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Good job continuing the conquest. They're supposed to drive out everybody um, out of this promised land, and then they're gonna, God's going to provide for them, right? Then comes the people of Benjamin in, in Joshua 121. I think I have it up on the screen here. Joshua 121. But the people of Benjamin... Did not drive out the Jebusites. And then it talks about, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin to this day. So we see our first kind of like, eh, maybe too much work. Not sure it was worth it. We're just going to let them live amongst us. How, how bad really could that be, right? Verse 127, Manasseh. How about the tribe of Manasseh? Manasseh did not drive out its inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, And what happened? They became forced labor. So they forced them to labor. They made the inhabitants slaves at that point. 129, 129, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. They lived amongst them as well. 131 and 133, Asher and Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. So they allowed them to live amongst them to this day. So let's go ahead and jump to chapter 2 then in the book of Judges. Chapter 2 then, God reminds them at this point. God reminds them. He says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. So he reminds them of this. You said, I told you not to make any covenants with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. And he says this, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. What was the people's response? What would have been your response if if God would have said that to you? I told you. I told you what you were supposed to do, and you didn't do it. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. I would have been crying too. (laughs) So... God reminds them of of what he told them. He reminds them of everything they've done. But it doesn't stop there. The death of Joshua comes. Joshua eventually dies. And in verse 10, it says this. "And all that the generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's really important. It says one generation. And all that generation were also gathered to the fathers, and there also arose another generation after them. We're talking one generation. One generation after Moses and Joshua. What were they commanded to do? Tell your children. Tell your children's children. We're setting rocks in the rivers. We cross over the Jordan. God provided for us. Man in the desert. Remember the Passover? We're going to have a Passover. We're going to have a feast of the Passover. One generation removed. I'm just going to continue on verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, which are, those are foreign gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, the people that they let live around them. And they provoked the Lord to anger, and they have abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to their plunderers, who plundered them. They sold them in the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had swore to them, and they were in terrible distress. So, judges. Israel's unfaithful. People did all sorts of evil. For the rest of the book of Judges, this is what the book of Judges is. I'm going to continue on in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they hoard after other gods, and they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who were afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving and bowing down to them. So this is is what happens for the next how many chapters of the book of Judges. They abandoned God. He would give them over to their enemies. The people would cry out. God would have pity on them. He would raise up a judge, and the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from their hand of their enemies. The judge would die, and then the people would return to their evil. So let's go ahead and fast forward to the book of, or sorry, Samson chapter 13 here. 13 through 16. People did what was evil. Again, after I don't know how many judges. I think there's 16 judges. This was after probably like eight or nine of them. They did what was evil once again. And so Manoah's wife, uh, Manoah was Samson's father. But Manoah's wife was visited by an angel to predict the birth of a son. Samson was to be a Nazarite, all right? So no razor, what that means is no razor was to touch his head. He shall be, um, and he was not to eat any strong, or eat any unclean foods or have any strong drink. And what was said was, is he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Right? So that's what we know about, um, so far with with Samson. So Manoah's wife was visited by an angel. An angel predicted his birth. No razor to his head. No strong drink. No unclean food. And he's going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So... Manoah's wife bore a child. She called him Samson. The Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. So that's good news. Good news that the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him because God was about to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. So from there, it's really interesting. There's, we know nothing about his life, really, that it jumps to adulthood at this point. So we jump to his adult life. He sees a daughter of the Philistines because they're in captivity of the Philistines at this point. And he says, I desire for her to be my wife. And his parents looked at him and said, hey, uh, we're not really, you sure you don't want somebody from our own tribe or like somebody from the Israelites? Because they were, in the back of their minds, they were thinking, we're not supposed to intermarry with the people of the Philistine, the, the people of the land. And he says, no, um, she is right in my eyes, is what he said. And so they allowed him to do this. And so uh, chapter 14, verse 4 says, his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So, Philistines have now taken over Israel. Samson's born. He wants to marry a daughter. We learn right now that the plan is from God that he wants um, Samson to go ahead and take out the Philistines so he can free Israel, free Israel from, the, from the Philistines. So, as he's kind of walking down to the place to meet his wife, um, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him as a lion came towards him. He has no weapon whatsoever. He grabs the lion with his bare hands, kills the lion with his bare hands. So at that point, you learn about his strength and how strong Samson is, especially when the Lord, um, the spirit of the Lord is rushed upon him. He tears it to pieces. So he gets to the Philistine woman. I don't know if you've ever seen like a football game when somebody tries to like intimidate the other team. And instead of bringing like two people out, they bring the whole team out. And then like this this big like intimidation fest at, at like midfield. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that before. Well, this is kind of like, the, the future wife of Samson. This is kind of what she does. Like he prepares a meal for her, which is tradition. But then she comes up with thirty companions. So she's got she's got like this group of thirty thirty dudes behind her, and I'm not sure exactly what for at that point. But that must have been part of the way they did it, right? So so he arrives, gets this meal, has this meal prepared, and he Samson looks at these thirty dudes and he says, "Hey, I got a riddle for you. And if you can solve it in seven days," um. I'll give you 30 changes of clothes. And but if you can't solve it, you need to give me 30 changes of clothes. All right? So um, they can't solve it within 4 days. So they bribe his wife at this point on the 4th day. They bribe her, they go to her, she weeps For days and days and days until they get to the seventh day and Samson is kind of moved to pity at this last day and he tells her what the answer to this riddle is and she tells the Philistines the Philistines come in their arrogance and say we got the answer to this riddle right and so Samson's like okay spirit of the Lord rushes on him he owes him 30 changes of clothes what does he do goes and kills 30 Philistines takes their clothes and goes and hands it to the 30 dudes and gives it to him but when he comes back guess what happens her father gave his wife away. So now Samson just kills 30 dudes. Her fa- his new father-in-law gives her away to somebody else because he thought Samson was mad at her or something like that. He goes to visit his wife, comes to the father, says he gives her away, and then the father, in his kind of shame, tries to give Samson her younger sister at this point and says, like, right, she's got a younger sister, blah, blah, blah. Samson's ticked at this point. He takes 30 foxes, don't know how he catches 30 foxes, but he got 30 foxes. Tied them together, put torches between their tails, and sets them free in the Philistine grains. So they burn down all of their foods, 300 foxes with torches, burns down all of their food. The Philistines are super ticked at this point. So they go, and they wonder who did this, and they say, it's Samson. Samson did this. And he goes to Samson's father-in-law and his bride, who the father gave away to somebody else and they actually killed them they killed the philistines killed the wife and her father samson's really upset at this point goes down and it says he struck them down hip and hip and thigh with a great blow so he goes and just destroys all those people that were responsible for that so he starts to set the people free in israel from the philistines by really um taking down the philistines and getting upset with them and god rushes upon him and his strength and he's able to do this so the Philistine, the rest of the Philistines hear about this. They get upset. They come to Judah, and they say, and they start to put a raid on Judah, the tribe of Judah, who's an allies with Samson, right, at this point, because Samson's an Israelite, Nazarite. And so he said, they say, Judah's like, what are you doing coming up against us? we you already have us. Like, what are you doing? And they're like, we came for Samson. We came for Samson. We want Samson. So 3,000 men of Judah who's on Samson's side, really, they go down to Samson, they're like, hey, dude, the the Philistines have charge over us, like, they're coming after you, and now they're invading us, and he goes, they go, we're going to bind you up, and we're going to give you to them, and he goes, are you going to attack me when you bind me up, and they said, no, we're not going to attack you, we're just going to go ahead and bind you up, he goes, go ahead, bind me up and give me to the Philistines, so they bind him up, take him to the Philistines, At that point, as soon as they hand him over to the Philistines, they come at him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him again. He takes a jawbone of a donkey, kills a thousand men at this point. Pretty strong dude. Tired from all that work, God splits open the earth, gives him something to drink, and we learn that um, he judges Israel for 20 years at this point. So Samson, not the greatest at giving honor and credit to God at this point, um, but he is the spirit of the Lord that comes upon him in strength, and God wants to set, op- set the Israelites free from the Philistines at this point, and then he judges Israel for 20 years. Well, during that time sometime, we don't really have a time frame on that, Samson meets a, a, a lady called Delilah, and he loves Delilah. She's got a great name, right? I mean, Delilah. Who wouldn't love Delilah? So Samson meets Delilah. The lords of the Philistine go to Delilah once again, and they say, you've got to get this guy to tell us where his strength lies. You have to t- get him to tell us exactly where his strength lies because he is, he is destroying us, right? So she tries to get him to, tell her, get him to tell her. He goes, well, at this point, he lies to her multiple times. He says, oh, if you put seven fresh bowstrings on me, I'll become weak. So she tells the Philistines they're waiting in the chamber, and all of a sudden, she, she ties him with fresh bowstrings, strings, which he probably, like... Acting like he's asleep, and he lets her <laughs> tie him up. Seven fresh bowstrings, and also she, she says, "The Philistines are on you." The Philistines are on you. He wakes up, snaps the snaps the bowstrings, and she's she's perplexed at this point. Like she's like, "How how come you're not telling me? You're making a mockery of me." So then he says, "Well, hey, if you use new ropes that have never been used before, then I'll become weak." Does the same thing. Says the Philistines are on you. He wakes up. He, breaks them free, and then um, she says, you're really making a mockery of me. He says, oh, one more lie. He says, uh, if you weave the seven locks of my hair and fasten it with a pin, I'll become weak. Once again, the Philistines are on you. He wakes up. He's strong as ever as God was with him. And finally, she pressed into him day after day after day after day, and the Bible says, until his soul was vexed. And finally, he tells her, and he says, it's my hair, and if you shave, shave my hair... I will lose my strength. Well, she had him, I think it says that she, she had him sleep on her lap. She called in somebody with a razor. They shave his hair. She says, hey, the Philistines are on you. He gets up. He did not know that the Lord had left him. What a sad verse that is, to, th- to know, like, that God had left you at that point, right? So they seized him. They gouged out both of his eyes, and they put him in prison. And the Bible says that his hair immediately starts to grow back so while he's in prison. His hair grows back, his hair grows back, his hair grows back. Meanwhile, sometime later, the Philistines gather to offer sacrifices to Dagon, who's their, do- or their, their god, not their dog. <laughs> well, it might have been a dog, I don't know. Dagon's their god, and they offer these sacrifices to Dagon, and there's thousands of people in this, in this temple that they're offering sacrifices to. So they call in Samson, bring in Samson, hey, He'll entertain us. Meanwhile, Samson's hair had grown back. He tells the person who's guiding him out there, would you just put me between these pillars so that I can know where I'm at and I can rest on these pillars. So he rests on these pillars, stands between the two of them, calls on the Lord in his weakness, calls upon the Lord one more time. Please remember me. Please remember me, God, and give me strength one more time that I may avenge my enemies. And God, the Spirit of the Lord, rushes upon him. And God gives him strength, and he pulled on the pillars, and all the pillars came crashing down. And the Bible says he killed more at his death than all he killed during his entire life. That's Samson. That's the story of Samson. So how in the world are we going to relate that to the New Testament and to Jesus? I'm here to point out a couple different things. It's a great story, number one. The book of Judges is a great book. I want to point out three things, three applications that I think are really important. Number one, Jesus is the better Samson. Jesus is the better Samson. Let's look at some of the similarities that happened during this time. So Luke one thirty one it pulled up on the screen. But who predicted Samson's birth? An angel predicted Samson's birth. And if you remember, another angel gave a young virgin a similar prediction. Luke one thirty one: behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Right? Not the only similarities. <clears throat> One of the cool things he said is, is, you remember when I said in the very beginning, he would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So Judges 13.5 says this. I think we got it up there. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall become his head. He should be a Nazarite. He should begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. But we learn in Matthew 1.21. Verse, she will bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Samson begins to save the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. Jesus saves people, not just people, but the whole entire world um, from sin, right? Jesus, like Sim- Samson, was publicly displayed for his enemies to mock. Right? He was put in between the pillars. He was there to be mocked. Um, yet, unlike Samson, Jesus walked into his death with complete willingness, and he was also mocked on the cross as well. The Holy Spirit was both with both Samson and Jesus, Samson was betrayed by his girlfriend Delilah for 1100 shekels of silver, Jesus was betrayed by his own disciple Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Samson killed all his enemies when he pushed the supporting pillars in. So he killed people or he killed enemies with his death. Jesus also in his death defeated sin, Satan and death when he died on the cross and then rose again 3 days later. The problem is is that Samson He was a savior as well, but he was an imperfect savior as he saved Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Jesus was a perfect savior. See, after Samson, he wasn't the last judge. He wasn't the last one who had to come and save Israel from a hand of their enemies. There were more after him. And if there were more after him, what does that say about the conduct of the people of Israel? They must have turned away again and again. They made kings, Saul, David, Solomon. They all fell short. There was still this need for a savior. It wasn't the end of it. Sin still needed to be punished, and unholy people could not live with a holy God. And if you remember the original creation story, God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to live with them forever, and he want, desires their praises. He desires to be glorified. Where Samson was an imperfect Savior, Jesus was the perfect Savior. Samson was born to deliver Israel from the Philistine. Jesus was born through Mary to deliver us from the power of sin, Satan, and death. Samson wasn't the last judge. The need need for a Savior did not go away. So we can see many articles out there talk about um, Jesus is the better Samson because there were so many similarities between his life and and Samson's life um, and how he points to a future Savior and the need for a future Savior. So I want you to see that in the Old Testament, how that happens, like how the need doesn't go away and the need for a future Savior does come and points to a better Samson, who is Jesus, who actually gets the job done and doesn't brag about his strength, doesn't brag in his, um, and take all the credit for um, the work that God had done, um, but he's a humble servant and come to wash the feet of the disciple. Whereas Samson recognized where his strength came from, but he took all the credit for the strength of that. And it wasn't until the end where he recognized his weakness that he saw the true power of God come into play and where he could finally take down the temple um, at the end. So number one, um, Samson does point to Jesus and the similarities and points to a future Savior. Number two, I um, I want you to understand this. The faithfulness of God is never dependent upon our faithfulness. All right? That's an important statement. So our faithfulness whether we're faithful or not, does not nullify the faithfulness of God. So God still carries out his plan to completion despite Israel's unfaithfulness and despite the king's unfaithfulness, despite Samson's unfaithfulness, despite the future kings and the prophets, despite unfaithfulness throughout all of Israel, God's faithfulness never goes away. He remains faithful to his word in bringing Jesus to earth to be crucified die for our sins, and, and rise and again from the dead, rise again from the dead, right? Romans 3.3 3 says this, does their faithlessness, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul says, by no means, by no means does, does, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. God remains faithful despite what we do. We see this in Job, Right? The book of Job, where all these bad things happen to Job, yet he never curses God. His friends told him to curse God and curse God and die. He never does it. Never does it. If we think that something can get to us before it gets to God first, we're wrong. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our our thoughts. He's the author of all things, and so he remains faithful because he sees that obviously has the bigger picture and is carrying out the bigger picture where we don't always see that lastly so again we see the similarities between samson and jesus and how his the imperfect savior points to a perfect savior we see that the faithfulness of god is never dependent upon our faithfulness praise god